Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us go up to Bethel, that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has gone, has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and that the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came, to, came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when the time of her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is, to be there, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. 
and the sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach here again, this, your word of God, we ask, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see and to understand and to apply these things to our hearts. We ask, Lord, that as we consider your faithfulness in the life of Jacob and in the, the lives of his sons, we pray that you would help us to see your faithfulness in our own lives. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see Lord, the worship that you are calling us to. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to respond in faith, in obedience, and in love to you. For you are worthy of all of our adoration. For Christ's sake, amen. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. No motion has she now, no force. She neither sees nor hears. Rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. This poem was written by William Wordsworth in 1798, written in the contemplation of the death of a young girl. The trees and stones and rocks bear silent witness to the end of her life. Genesis 35 is about endings. This chapter marks the end of the Toledot of Isaac, which, as we have seen, primarily follows the life of Jacob. Genesis 35 includes three deaths, and each brings closure to the past, the end of generations past. So Genesis 35 is about endings, yet Genesis 35 is also about continuation as it also includes a birth and a shift in focus to Jacob's sons. Genesis 35 also marks the end of idolatry and the continuation of true worship in Jacob's family. It marks the end of Jacob's sojourn outside the promised land, and the continuation of God's blessing on Jacob's life. So this is a chapter of transition. A transition that is marked, as we will see, by trees and stone pillars and altars. They serve as road markers, as landmarks along the path. And there are lessons for us here as well as our lives move relentlessly towards death. We're all marching towards death. Yet we lean on gospel promises for our own lives and hope and pray for a continuation of those gospel promises to continue in the next generation. I want us to consider as we look at this passage, what are the landmarks around your, on your path? What are the milestones in your life? So again, this passage is one of ending and of continuity. And there are seven scenes in this passage, each with its own landmark along the way. So first of all, in verses 1 to 4, the end of idolatry and a tree near Shechem. The end of idolatry and a tree near Shechem. 
Genesis 34, if you remember, was horrific. It had essentially nothing commendable in it. Jacob had failed to deal with the violation of his daughter Dinah, and this opened the door for the mass murder of the men of Shechem by Jacob's sons. There's only a, a counter-rebuke from Jacob's sons after he had rebuked them. Jacob was motivated by fear of the retaliation of, uh, by the Canaanites because of the murder of the men of Shechem. Jacob essentially did nothing about the violation of his daughter and nothing about the wicked retaliation of his sons. So we're left at the end of chapter 4 wondering what is going to happen next to this family. As we see Jacob fading into the background and his sons beginning to take center stage. But now in chapter 35, verse 1, God says to Jacob, we just stop here for a second and, and consider these words. God speaks to Jacob. After what had just happened in chapter 34, you would expect heaven to be silent. Or if there to be any words from heaven, it would be a thunderous rebuke. But God doesn't do that. God speaks to Jacob. And in this conversation that, that God is having with Jacob, we see Jacob following in the footsteps of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac before him. And God tells Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you had fled from your brother Esau. So this verse, this beginning of chapter 35 is remarkable when you consider the horrific events of chapter 34. This is grace. This is God's grace in the life of Jacob. Jacob had dealt with sinful fear for, for much of his life. Fear of Esau, fear of Laban, fear of Esau again. And every time God had dealt with Jacob graciously. And now here, Jacob's, at the end of chapter 34, as Jacob's sinful fear again reared its ugly head, God's grace rose to meet and overcome it. God gives Jacob his gracious command, arise, go up, settle, build an altar. This is a call for Jacob to fulfill what he had vowed he would do back at the end of, of chapter 38, 20 years earlier. God is now graciously calling Jacob back to obedience. Let's go to the end of chapter, 30, uh, chapter 28 for a second. In, in verses, uh, verses 20 to 22, we see this vow. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So this command here at the beginning of, of chapter 35 is an opportunity for Jacob to repent and to return to the right path. It is an opportunity for him to finish the journey back to Bethel to the house of God. But notice also that there is an additional command there. Build an altar. This is the only time in all of Genesis that a patriarch is commanded to build an altar. 
So it's an also an opportunity to, to return to, to true worship, to full obedience. Again, this is grace. This is an opportunity to do a reboot. And that's what God's grace does. The Apostle Peter had boldly proclaimed that he would lay down his life for Jesus. But when push came to shove, Peter's sinful fear reared its ugly head. He denied Jesus three times, even before a servant girl, and even with a curse. And when that rooster crowed, Peter wept bitter tears. But a few days later, in a seaside encounter, God's grace rose to overcome Peter's sin. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus responded with a command, care for my sheep. Once again, your sin has reared its ugly head. Maybe it wasn't fear, but maybe it was, was lust or anger or envy or, or pride or, or bitterness. You aren't off the hook if I didn't mention your particular besetting sin. But whatever your sin, whatever your sin, it, it too often rears its ugly head, doesn't it? But if you are in Christ, God's grace rises to meet and overcome it. God's grace is greater than your sin. But notice also that like, like with Jacob and, and like with Peter, with God's grace comes the gracious command. Do what you have set out to you to do. Repent of going in the wrong direction. Return to Bethel. Return to the house of God. Return to true worship. Let go, reject whatever it was that you were doing to sin against God. And it's all grounded on God's grace. So here Jacob responds to God's command with obedience and he determines to finish the journey that he had started to return to Bethel. But notice what he does first. He calls for holiness. For holiness in his household and his whole entourage. Verses 2 and 3. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Now think about this. Here's a... He's obedient, being obedient to the Ten Commandments before the Ten Commandments were laid down. They, they had not yet been codified in, in the Mosaic Law, but they were still part of God's law. Even though the, the moral law had not yet been codified, idolatry was always wrong. The first two commandments specifically forbid the worshiping of false gods and the making of images. Now, Jacob should have done this a long time ago. But thankfully, he's doing it now. And once, once he and his household have done this, he says, then they will rise and go to Bethel and build an altar to the God who had delivered Jacob. In order to return to true worship, you must turn away from false worship. Worship the God who's answered you in all of your distress and has been with you wherever you have gone. Worship him in holiness. Worship him in obedience. Jacob's household obeyed. So they gave him their foreign gods, their idols, which presumably included the household idols that Rachel had stolen from Laban. 
They gave him their earrings that were probably used in cultic worship. And, and, and they gave all of these implements of pagan religion to Jacob. And then Jacob buried them under the terebinth tree near Shechem. This terebinth tree is, is the first landmark that we see in chapter 35. I wonder, are there any idols or graven images that you need to bury? Now, I doubt that anybody here bows before a, a little statue in worship, but I think we all know the temptation towards idolatry. You know that that pull, that desire to worship things other than God. John Calvin said that the human heart was a factory of idols. Here, David Paulison. God challenges the things that everybody, everywhere, eagerly pursues. Desires of body and mind. Matthew 6.32. Paulson asks us to consider our characteristic passions. Desires of the body include life itself, air, health, water, food, clothing, shelter, sexual pleasure, rest, and exercise. He says desires of the mind include happiness, being loved, Meaning, money and possessions, respect, status, accomplishment, self-esteem, success, control, power, righteous self-righteousness, aesthetic pleasure, knowledge, marriage and family. He says many of these things aren't bad in and of themselves. But the evil in our desires does not lie in what we want. Hear this. Does not lie in what we want, but the evil lies in the fact that we want it too much. And so what happens, he says, is that our desires for, for, for good things even seize the throne and become idols that usurp God's place as the king. Is there anything in your life that usurps God's place on the throne of your heart? Bury it. Get rid of it. Destroy it. Remove its influence from your life completely. Only then will you be free to be able to worship God in the way that he demands, in the way that he deserves. And you know what? When you do that, you will find that the joys of worshiping him, of truly worshiping him, are immeasurably greater than any fleeting pleasure that is found in bowing to a false god. So the first landmark, the first landmark was this terebinth tree that, that marked this, this end of idolatry. The second is found in verses 5 to 7 where we see the continuation of worship and an altar at Bethel. So Jacob and his entourage set out, but they, they weren't, they, they, as they traveled now from the, the area of Shechem to Bethel, Remember what Jacob had feared. He was afraid of the retaliation of the Canaanites. He, he was afraid that they would find out what had happened in Shechem, what his sons had done, and that they would, they would kill him and his family before they had the chance to grow even more powerful. But this reprisal of the Canaanites for the murder of the men of Shechem never came. Why not? It wasn't because of Jacob's military prowess. It wasn't because of Canaanite cowardice. It was because of the grace of God on Jacob's life. We're told that a terror from God 
fell upon the surrounding cities. Verse 5, as they, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This was the hand of God. And it certainly wasn't deserved. We see a parallel of this in Moses' song of deliverance in Exodus 15 verses 14 and 16 where, where terror and dread fell upon the Philistines and the Moabites because of the greatness of God's arm. Now in that particular case, it was because they had found out about the fact that God had drowned the army of Pharaoh. All, Pharaoh himself and, and, the, and his chariots in the Red Sea after allowing Israel to cross on dry, on dry ground. But we're not told specifically how this fear came down in the hearts of, of these Canaanite men, only that the Lord himself put terror in their hearts. And that was a protection for Jacob and his family. So they arrived safely at the city of Bethel, formerly called Luz. Jacob had been commanded to go there, had, had promised himself to go there, and now after 20 years, he's finally back. And God has been faithful to his promises to bring Jacob back safely. God is his God. God is Jacob's God. And so there, Jacob builds an altar as he had been commanded to do. And this altar is, is our second landmark. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament worship, a, a, an altar was usually an elevated uh, platform or, or flat surface upon which sacrifices were made. And an altar marked the place as, as consecrated to the Lord and, and often commemorated an encounter with the Lord. The first altar in the Bible, remember, was, was built by Noah after he had come out of, of the ark. The first thing he does is, is make an altar and sacrifice an animal on it for the glory of God. Of course, the best known altar in the scriptures is, is the altar in the tabernacle of the temple where the sacrifices were made. But here, in making this altar, Jacob is following in the footsteps of Abraham and Isaac, who had also made altars. And Joshua gave the name of the place a, a new name. He gave it a new name, not just Bethel, but El Bethel. The house of God is now God, house of God. This is the place where God had promised to be with Jacob, where God had met with Jacob and, and promised to be with him wherever he went. So it wasn't that this, this place was that there's something magical about Bethel. What God, it was, it's about the fact that God had promised to be faithful to him there, that God had promised to be with him wherever he went. And so even as he, he understands now, even if he, as he had gone to Haran and been there for 20 years and now finally returns back to Bethel, that God has been with him all the way. And Bethel would be a perpetual reminder for Israel of God's faithfulness to Jacob in spite of Jacob's unfaithfulness. It would be a reminder to Israel of God's gracious promises, that those promises would be extended to them as the progeny of Jacob. This reminder is going to be essential in the history of Israel, the dark history of Israel. Now, of course, we understand that we don't make altars anymore, right? We don't make altars anymore. They're, they're part of the furniture of the Old Covenant. Christ mediates a better covenant built on better promises. Hebrews 8, 6. Those, those sacrifices that, that we see in the Old Testament all pointed to something. They pointed to the sacrifice of, of Jesus Christ. 
But I wonder what in, in your life do you proverbially, proverbially need to lay on the altar? What, what is God calling you to sacrifice out of obedience to him? You want the short answer? Everything. Everything. Even your very life needs to be on the altar. As you take up your cross and follow Jesus, he, he wants it all. He, he owns it all. And, and as, you, as you give your everything up to him, he gives it back to you sanctified. There's going to be things that you don't get back. But the things that are sanctified, that are now full of worship and, and put in their proper place before God, God gives back to you. So what do you, what do you need to lay on the altar? Is there anything specifically that, that you are holding on to? That God is saying, no, 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 that's mine. Now for the third, the, the, the third scene and the third landmark, the end of Deborah, and another tree. Well, now in verse 8, we have the first death in this chapter. It's Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. Now, we haven't heard any mention of Deborah since all the way back in Genesis 24, 59, where we're told that Rebecca's nurse went with Rebecca from Haran as she traveled into Canaan to marry Isaac. Now, some commentators suggest that, that Deborah had at some point gone to be with Jacob and to help him raise his family in Haran, but that's conjecture. Since she's left Haran with Rebekah, and Rebekah had promised to send for Jacob in, uh, in, 20, in 2745, we, we don't know really what, where she'd been. But Deborah's presence here now provides the promise of return. It, it's, it's like a, a reminder of the fact that the, the Jacob's coming home. He's coming home. You know? But assuming here that, that Deborah was, was a believer, which we assume she was based on, on, on what happens here, she's already home. She, she's, Deborah's gone to her true home. But isn't it interesting? There's, there's no mention at all of, of Rebecca here, of, of Jacob's mother. Rebecca has died sometime earlier. Jacob never did get to see her again alive. But Deborah is included here as, as a representative of that generation. Deborah's obituary symbolizes the end of that generation. And Jacob buried her under the oak tree below Bethel. This is our third landmark. And he called the tree Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Deborah was greatly loved by the household. But there, there is grief when death comes. Believers, too, suffer as a result of death. Death is an enemy. It is the last enemy to be defeated by Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. But Christ has already defeated death, hasn't he? He's the first fruits from the grave. I wonder how, how have the deaths in your life affected you? Some move towards the Lord in their grief. Others move away. I was recently with someone who had been greatly impacted by the death of a very godly person who was very close to him. But the way that he responded to this death wasn't what you might expect. He's actually increasingly pursued sin. 
Now he trusts as the gospel truths that he's heard so many times coming to bear in his life that he will come back and, and be, be right with God. I really don't know where this man is at with the Lord. But how do you respond to death? How do you respond to the deaths of those around you? Now, of course, it's, it's different when a, when a Christian responds to the death of another Christian. It's, we, we grieve, but not as those without hope, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But, but we know that the deaths of non-Christians, at least those that, we, that appear to be non-Christians, because we don't know what happens in the final moments, moments of somebody's life, th- those, are, those are horrific to us. As we, we think about the prospect of, of those that we have loved and, and cared for, going to a Christless eternity, being eternally under the wrath of God. So there's a profound impact that the death of, of believers and unbelievers has in the lives of a Christian. And I prefer preaching at, at funerals over weddings. And don't get me wrong, I, I love weddings. It is a, it's a great privilege for me to be able to officiate in a wedding. But frankly, people aren't listening to a lot of what I'm saying at a wedding. They're just there. They're celebrating the joy of this couple being joined together. But at a funeral, there people listen. There I've got their attention. As the reality of death is present before them, it often makes people, at least for a time, eager to hear about spiritual things. And I've had people very angry at me at funerals for, for simply preaching the gospel. But I'm grateful for that opportunity to, to be able to testify that there is a life, there is a death, there is a coming judgment, and that the only hope that, that anyone has in life or death or the coming judgment is to put their faith in Christ and Christ alone. So I like preaching funerals. Don't be in a hurry to die on me, but I, but I, I, I do enjoy preaching funerals. Fourth landmark, verses 9 to 15, the continuation of the blessing and the pillar at Bethlehem. God now appears to Jacob again and blesses Jacob again. This is another theophany, another appearance of God. God says to him in verse 10, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now we know from from the incident at Peniel that that Jacob had already had this, this new name Israel. This blessing here points back to Peniel, where God had wrestled with Jacob and renamed him Israel. No longer is he Jacob the heel grabber. Now he is Israel, he who strives with God. So Jacob has come home now to Bethel with a new name that is indicative of his new nature. Victor Hamilton says that that Jacob is not only to bury the foreign gods, but he is to bury whatever has become for all practical purposes a foreign nature, a Jacob nature. So this name change is is vitally important to to, to Jacob as a reminder that he's no longer what he was. He has a new nature, but it's also vitally important for for Israel, for Jacob's namesake. The nation of Israel. Friends, you need, if you're in Christ, you have a new nature. You need to remind yourself of your new nature. Yes, there is a duality as you continue to wage war against your sinful flesh. 
But remember who you are in Christ. Remember, remember your identity. Remember that, that you have been, you have the, the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Consider who you truly are now in Christ. So then in verses 11 and 12, God identifies himself with the name of God Almighty, El Shaddai. And there he repeats the blessings that he'd already promised to Abraham, that he'd already promised to Isaac, that he'd already promised to Jacob several times. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So again, we see this promise is a promise of an offspring, an offspring that is going to include nations and kings. And it's also the promise of land. These are the promises we've seen again and again in Genesis. But then God went up from him. Now there's very strong parallels to the theophany of God to Abraham in Genesis 17. It's the same name for God is used. It's the name change is present there. The promise of an offspring that includes kings. And even the same words that describe God's going up. There, there's, there, there's an intentionality here to show the, the continuity between Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. This is the same promise. This, this generation and, and Jacob's prominence in Genesis is drawing to a close. But there's hope here that, that God's blessing is going to continue to the next generation. Just as it has gone from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, it will now go to Jacob's sons. God is not going to speak to Jacob again until chapter 46, verses 2 to 4, when Jacob is about to leave Canaan for the last time. The, the time of God's personal conversations with the patriarchs is drawing to a close. And so in the life of, of Joseph, we're going to see a shift to dreams as God's main revelation to his people. But now we have in in this new covenant, we have, we have the canon of Scripture. There's been another shift. A Copernican shift. So that God speaks to us in His Word. We have the whole counsel of His Word. God's Word is the means of revelation to His people. Jacob has set up a pillar of stone as a reminder of the meeting that he had with the Lord back in chapter 28. And now he does it again. And he pours a drink offering on it and pours oil on it. So he'd set up an altar. He'd set up a pillar before. And now this is another pillar. This is our fourth landmark. This is the fulfillment of the vow that God had made to Jacob. And it's a reminder of God's continued blessing. And so he then reiterates the name Bethel that he had already given to the place. So we've seen trees. We, we've seen altars. And now we see a stone pillar as a reminder of God's blessing. What pillars remind you of God's blessing in your life. I can think of two key ones. My family and this church. My family and this church 
the, the two greatest blessings that, that God has given me as, as part of my salvation. He's given me my family and this church as a reminder of his blessing in my life. These are blessings that are part and parcel with my salvation. If it wasn't for my salvation, God never would have given me Jane. And if it wasn't for my salvation, God never would have given me this church family. Can you say that with me? Do you, do you understand the role that your family and your church play in reminding you of your salvation, of God's blessing in your life? These are tangible, everyday reminders at your kitchen table, at the Lord's table, as we gather together as God's people. These are reminders of God's blessing in salvation. These are pillars in your life. Now for the, the fifth Landmark. Verses 16 to 21, the end of Rachel and the pillar at Bethlehem. I'm going to move a little more quickly here. <clears throat> As Jacob and his family continued to travel, leaving Bethel, headed for Hebron to see Isaac, we're told that Rachel went into labor, and it was a particularly hard labor. And then at the hardest moment, the midwife says to Rachel, Do not fear, for you have another son. The Lord was answering Rachel's prayer from back in chapter 30, verse 24, commemorated in the name of Joseph. May the Lord add to me another son. And so as Rachel was dying, she called his name Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. Even though she was rejoicing over a son, she's also grieving the end of her life. But Jacob renamed him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, essentially son of my strength. Derek Kidner describes this as a fine gesture of faith to rename the son of my sorrow to the son of my right hand as a positive aspect of so dark an experience. And we'll see how, how Benjamin will become a, a favored son in Jacob's life. So this reminder, as, as Rachel dies, as this, as this beloved wife of Jacob dies, as his, his, his favorite wife dies. My wife is my favorite wife too. But as, as she dies, Benjamin is born. Again, it's, it's, it's an end, but it's also a continuation. There's a, a promise that is continuing to this next generation. God is seen to be faithfully answering prayer. God's promises are continuing to the next generation. Just think about that for a moment with, with the children in this church. You know, we, we trust that as God word, God's word goes out, more people will come to saving faith and, and will, 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 Lord willing, will join this church. But, but, but one of the main means we have of, of evangelism is the children in this church. And as we see this children, we see, we see promise. We, we see hope of the future. And we pray that we pray, kids, we pray for you guys Regularly, very regularly, almost daily, you will come to saving faith. That you will grow up to be men and women of God. That you will faithfully serve God in your generation. That's, a, that's our prayer for you. That's our greatest prayer for you. 
Rachel dies and is buried on the way to Ephrath. The promises continue. And Jacob sets up another pillar, this time over her, her tomb in Bethlehem. This is arguably the first tombstone, our fifth landmark. This is Bethlehem, where the matriarch died and where the last of the patriarchs is born. The, the twelfth member of the tribes of Israel. This place is also going to be remembered as the birthplace of, of King David and especially of the, as the birthplace in the flesh of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, dies and we see the, the end of life but also the continuation of the blessing to the next generation. Again, Benjamin is the last patriarch, this 12th son of Jacob, the final member of the 12 tribes of Israel. So after introducing the last born son, the story moves horribly back to the firstborn son with our sixth landmark, verses 22 to 26, the end of Reuben's birthright and the family tree. While Israel lived in that land, verse 22, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. This is shocking. Laying with his father's wife is tantamount to incest. This is the same type of sin that takes place in 1 Corinthians 5 that leads to the excommunication of a church member. But Reuben's sin wasn't just motivated by lust. Reuben is usurping his father's authority and his position. It's a mutiny of, of almost the worst kind. Absalom, Absalom will do the same thing to his father, King David, in, uh, in 2 Samuel 16, 20 and 22. Perhaps, perhaps the only thing worse would be if he actually killed his father. And notice that the name of Israel is used here twice in these verses. This has implications for the whole tribe. And for the future of the tribe. But again, Jacob isn't seen to do anything about it. This is a further sign that his position in the family and in this narrative is fading. In fact, he's not going to do anything until chapter 49, verses 3 and 4, where, where Reuben is going to see, receive Jacob's condemnation. He says uh, in 49, verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might. And the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Then comes the turn, verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, although the ultimate reason for, for this rejection of Reuben is election, here you see the human reasons for the rejection of Reuben, uh, along with, with, with Simeon and Levi for their actions in the previous chapter. We'll see that in the, when we get to Genesis 49 as well. But what's going to happen here, so remember, Reuben was the firstborn, but Judah is now going to take the place of the firstborn. We'll told later in 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2 that, that this resulted in the loss of Reuben's birthright, that Joseph will receive a double blessing, that blessing which is then transferred to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But after this horrific event, we then see a summary, 
summary statement of all of Jacob's son, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is, this is a family tree. This is our sixth landmark. The names aren't listed chronologically, but are organized according to Jacob's wives. And even though Rachel is Jacob's preferred wife, God chose Leah. She is in the first position. And it is her son Judah who is going to have the pride of position. And, and he is going to be the one through whom the line of kings will come. He's going to be the one through, again, according to, according to the, in the physical sense, from which the king of kings will come. So this family tree fits the, the conclusion of this Toledot. The offspring of, of Jacob here are contrasted with the Toledot of Esau that we're going to see in chapter 36, which includes the genealogy of the Edomites. But the focus now again shifts to Jacob's sons, whose rivalry is going to dominate pretty much the rest of Genesis. These are the ones who will come from Jacob. And those who first received this testimony and were about to cross into the promised land could take heart here that these, these, sons, of, these sons of Jacob born, in, born outside of the promised land, all of them except for Benjamin, were born in Padanaram, that they had come into the promised land and Israel would have hope that they would come to the promised land as well. We read in Hebrews chapter 11 that then the truest sense, they never did come into the promised land. They awaited a better country, a heavenly country. This is our promised land. This is the true and eternal promised land. And we can have a confidence when we see God's faithfulness to, we've seen it all the way through. Now to Jacob and being transferred then to, his, to Jacob's sons, even though none of them deserved it. We're seeing God's promised faithfulness to us. Then finally, in verses 27 to 29, our seventh landmark, the end of Isaac and the tomb at Hebron. So finally, Jacob returns home to his father at Hebron. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see that reunion? After 20 years apart, living under horrific circumstances, he's finally coming home to his father to what turns out to be his real deathbed. Remember, Isaac had thought he was on his deathbed 20 years ago. But he's, now he's actually dying. This reunion fulfills the, 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 shows the, highlights the fulfillment of the completion of God's promise to bring Jacob back to his father's house in 28 verses 15 and 21. God has once again been faithful to Jacob. And as Isaac dies at the ripe old age of 180, it's hard sometimes to see the timelines here, but, but, but he would actually live, Isaac would actually live long enough to see Joseph sail into slavery. We see continuity with Jacob and now to Jacob's sons. Lincoln Duncan says it, so Jacob's waited his whole life to assume the headship. The official headship of the covenant. When the, the time finally comes, the, sheet, the scene shifts from him. Remember, Isaac, Isaac didn't really... We, we spent a lot of time with Abraham. We spent a lot of time with Jacob. Jacob's not done yet. He's going to go right to the end. But Isaac doesn't really get a... It doesn't really play a, 
a, a prominent role in, co compared to the other two in that, that, that patriarchal trilogy. He doesn't have the, the same focus, but he was essential to the survival of the family the, and, and the, the continuation of the promises because it is through Isaac that Abraham's offspring will be named. We saw that repeated in 21.12 and it's also in the New Testament, Romans 9.11 and Hebrews 11.18 and so on. But, so he plays a, a, an important role, if not, it, not as prominent. But here, Isaac dies. And he's buried in Hebron. In this, the same tomb as, as his father, Abraham, as his mother, Sarah, as his wife, Rebekah, as Jacob himself will later be buried, as also as, as Jacob's wife, Leah, will be buried. And then we see Esau coming. Remember, they'd reconciled earlier, and now they come together to bury Isaac in this cave of Machpelah. And so Jacob's death marks another end. It's the end of an, of an era, that, that tomb, which you can visit to this day, and you can see where the, these patriarchs and their wives are buried. It marks an end, but the promises endure. The sin of Reuben cost his inheritance, but God's blessings continue. Jacob had neglected his vows, but God ensured that they would be kept. And when they were kept, God had confirmed his promises. Friends, we so easily forget. And people set up landmarks to remember important, life-changing events. You can go to Quebec and see a license plate that says, Je me souviens. Or, remember the Alamo. People want to remember important events. We do it as Christians as well. But when Christians remember important events, they're not remembering the events for the sake of the events. They're not trying to remember the circumstances themselves, but, but we do this to remember God, to remember what He has done. Through this chapter, we, we've seen how, how rocks and, and trees are landmarks to remind Jacob of what the Lord has done in his life. Now, I'm not suggesting that we set up rocks or plant trees. But we remember another tree. The tree on which our Savior died. With Peter in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You were like Jacob. You were like Jacob's sons. You were a wandering, straying, sinful sheep. But on that cross, as our Lord and Savior died, 
he received the wrath that you and I deserved. On that tree, he became a curse for us. He was cursed so that we would not be cursed. He bore the wrath that you and I deserve. We were straying like sheep, but now we have returned to him, to Jesus Christ, the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. So we don't set up rocks and trees. We've been given two clear reminders. In, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have baptism that we regularly Celebrate when, when someone comes to faith in Christ, we have baptism that shows that somebody has joined with Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. These emblems, these reminders of the body and blood of Christ. Of far more effect as a means of grace than any tree or, or any, any rock. Because they remind us of the cross of our Lord and Savior. That he died for our sins and that he rose from the grave and that he is going to come to be, that, we're, that he's going to come and take us home. We're going to go to be with him. We're going to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb and we're going to be with Jesus for all eternity. So remembering what has taken place in anticipation of what is going to happen in the future. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we marvel at these great reminders in your word of, of what you have done for your people. As we think about your faithfulness to Jacob, we realize your faithfulness to us. Lord, you are the same God. You have not changed. Your faithfulness endures forever. And Lord, we praise you that you demonstrated your faithfulness most profoundly, most powerfully. Lord Jesus, in taking on human flesh, and dwelling in the midst of a sinful creation and dying for the sins of your people, your bride, the church. So Lord, as we gather together this morning in this local church to remember who you are and all that you have done, we pray, Lord, that you would cause this celebration, this Lord's Supper, this Holy Communion, to be a means of grace in our lives, that he would be, you would use it to transform us more increasingly into a reflection of Jesus. For your name's sake, amen.